0: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
1: Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome to the third season of Criminalia. This season, we are exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious imposters throughout history, I'm Maria Tremarchi.
1: And I'm Holly Fry. You might remember from just a few years ago a woman named Anna Sorokin. And in 2013, Anna began pretending she was a wealthy German heiress named Anna Delvey who was waiting for her $70 million inheritance. That would be lovely. I'd like that. (laughs) Yes. Despite the fact that this woman was not an heiress and there was no inheritance. She managed to fly on private jets and she spent very extravagantly on things like $400 eyelash extensions. She was a figure on the social scene, but all of that was based on lies and without any money of her own, the credit cards of her friends. No one could actually agree on where she came from and no one knew where she got her money, which didn't really exist. Right. When she was arrested, she had swindled numerous banks, and friends out of tens of thousands of dollars. She was convicted in 2019, and she went to prison for three years. But we're actually
0: not going to talk about Anna anymore in this episode. However, we do mention her because she actually is not that dissimilar to a woman we will be talking about, a woman named Elizabeth Betty Bigley. You may know Betty better as the high society imposter Cassie Chadwick, Betty was born on October 10th, 1857, on a small farm in Ontario, Canada, and she was the fifth of eight children, but we'll see where her story goes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When she was young, Betty lost her hearing in one ear, and she went on to develop a speech disorder. One of her sisters, who was named Alice, said that Betty was often in a, quote, trance-like state, and when awakening from that trance-like state, she seemed to be disoriented, Alice also observed her sister practicing her family members' signatures. That's actually not the first time that we've seen that.
0: Princess Caribou used to practice signatures from her family and friends as well. So, this is something to look out for, I think, among your friends. Are you an imposter? Can you sign my name? <laughs> In addition to what her sister had to say, though, her classmates found her, and I'm going to quote this peculiar. She's also been described as plain with a tight, unsmiling mouth and eyes that had a singular intensity. And that is also a quote. And it's that part about her eyes that led to her nickname in the press, the Lady of the Hypnotic Eye.
1: Now, as a teenager or possibly a young woman in her early 20s, depending on the sources you look at, The sources vary because once somebody becomes famous, everybody has a version of the story. Exactly, (laughs) Um, And she will, as you see, go on to become quite famous. But sometime in that late teen, early 20s time frame, Betty pulled her first scam. And this type of scam, it turns out, would become her trademark. First... Betty saved up a little bit of money, enough to buy sheets of fancy letterhead, and using a fictitious name and address of an attorney in London, Ontario, that is the London and Canada, of course, not in the UK, Betty notified herself on this new letterhead that her uncle, a philanthropist, had died and left her an inheritance of $15,000. But
0: the problem here is that there was no uncle and there was no $15,000 inheritance,
1: that's OK. She's got supporting documentation. She, does. Because she also had business cards made. <laughs> Her business cards were made to look like the calling cards or visiting cards. They were actually very common during this time. The social elite normally carried them. And calling cards were this sort of upper class social custom where you would use your personalized cards to communicate with other wealthy people or even just to say hi. We also discovered at least one woman in the research who, quite practically, and I love this, I love and think this I too. might start doing it, <laughs> wrote her personal seasonal visiting hours on her card. You may come by my house between 4 and 6 p.m. on Wednesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> that is called
0: setting boundaries. Exactly. So Betty's card read Miss Bigley, heiress to $15,000. That's all. That was her card. I mean, after all, if you have a card saying you're an heiress, doesn't that make you an heiress?
1: I'm uh, putting on my shoes to run to the printer. Be right back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There was the matter of spending her alleged inheritance... Every time we say that, you got to imagine the air quotes. Um, Spending imaginary money is actually way easier than you may expect. Business practices in the late 19th century were a little bit, we'll say relaxed. (laughs) That sounds like people were not being diligent, but they just didn't have access to the transfers of information we do now. And especially when you compare it to today where everything is cross-checked, it would seem lax. Yes, Betty, for example, would pick out a shop and then choose a beautiful and expensive item to purchase. This is when those relaxed business practices
0: became problematic for the businesses, although not really for Betty. Um, (laughs) Betty would write a check for an amount greater than the cost of her chosen item. And there's a specific reason for her doing that. Many shop owners were willing to pay her the difference and they would pay her immediately. And with her calling card, no one ever questioned whether or not she had the means to pay that back. It said she was an heiress to $15,000 and it worked every time.
1: For the record, for our younger listeners in the crowd, this went on into my lifetime where you could write a check at like the grocery store for over an amount and they'd give you change. I remember that too. I remember my mom doing that. And they couldn't check your bank account balance at the time. It wasn't like using a debit card. It was literally just a paper transaction. So Maria had said this worked every single time, and we should amend that yes. to almost every time. She, Yeah. There was one time when it didn't work. <laughs> she was eventually arrested because of that one time it did not work. That was a few months after she started this little scheme. And her punishment was allegedly nothing more than a warning never to do it again. So she got off pretty easy. And as we'll see, that punishment was not enough to dissuade her because she ignored that warning completely.
0: (laughs) Other than her debut into the world of being an imposter during her young adulthood, we actually don't know much else about her early years. Um, We know beginning in 1881, which puts her at about 24 years old, she was arrested in Woodstock, Ontario, and she was charged with forgery, but she was released on the grounds of insanity, which is interesting.
1: We are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and when we return, we will talk about Betty's many marriages. Can I rant for a sec? Please. hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to. But on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at ThriveCosmetics.com slash Criminilia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com. Slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions and I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/criminalia. That's simplysafe s i m p l i s a f e.com/criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
0: Welcome back to Criminalia. Did you know Betty bought herself a $9,000 pipe organ? Let's talk about her living large.
1: Before we get any deeper, though, into Betty's story, we have to talk a little bit about her name, and I should say names plural because she had a lot of pseudonyms. In addition to Betty Bigley, her given name, she was known by a number of other names, including Lydia DeVere, which I absolutely love and might adopt for something, Lydia Scott, Cassie Hoover, Cassie L. Chadwick, and of course, perhaps her most famous fake name, Cassie Chadwick L. It is possible and very likely that she also used some other names, including Elizabeth Cunard, Emily Heathcliff, and perhaps even Marie LaRose. In 1882, Betty took a train to
0: Cleveland to live with one of her sisters, whom maybe was Alice, maybe not. Uh, She did finally get her own place where she claimed to neighbors that she was a widow and she introduced herself as Lydia DeVere. This is the first time I believe that she called herself a fortune teller. She also began
1: using the name at this time, Lydia Scott. These always sound so confusing to me. I'm like, how do you remember who you told what name to? I know, especially if it's Lydia and Lydia. like <laughs> <laughs> Cassie, Cassie. <laughs> she liked certain names, but as Lydia DeVere, Betty actually opened a shop with money that she got by pawning her sister's furniture and painting. She had estimated the value of each item in her sister's home, and she opened a bank loan using those furnishings as collateral. So basically, they were still in the sister's home, but the bank had uh, a legal right to take them if this loan was not paid back. Naturally, when her brother-in-law discovered what she had been up to, he kicked her out of his house. She was not really welcome at family gatherings at that point. I imagine not. Yeah. Betty spent time in jail for forgery as a consequence.
0: It was around this time that she met a man named Wallace S. Springsteen. She was posing as her fortune-telling alter ego, Lydia DeVere, not Scott, when she met Springsteen, who happened
1: to be a doctor. Springsteen was smitten, and the pair were married. But there was a problem. When pictures from their ceremony appeared in Cleveland's local newspaper, The Plain Dealer, people recognized her face, but not as Lydia DeVere or even as Betty Bigley. They mostly recognized her because she had defrauded them. (laughs) And now those people wanted their money back. Betty was also having financial problems at home with her new spouse. She had accumulated so much debt so quickly that her husband divorced her in a matter of weeks, fearing that if he didn't, he would soon be broke. She dodged her victim's demands for restitution and quickly remarried. So after
0: her marriage to Springsteen, Betty married several more times. And those marriages were in or all nearby Cleveland first she married a man named John R Scott a farmer in Trumbull County Ohio the marriage did not last long though only a few months john later claimed and it said so did other victims of her scams that betty had hypnotic powers hypnotic powers were actually a really popular concept at the turn of the century and And people would wonder, could hypnosis be used to explain things like adultery? Maybe so.
1: Doctors at this point in history were experimenting with a therapeutic application to support the idea that hypnotic treatment was psychological rather than physical in nature. But at the time, many people believed in some things that we wouldn't today. So surely that will happen to us 100 plus years from now. We're not judging the people of the past. They just didn't have the information. But at this point, 8 million Americans believed that spirits could be conjured from the dead and that hypnotism could cure, and this is a bit of a long list, agoraphobia, depression, epilepsy, hysteria, satiriasis in men and nymphomania in women, skin diseases, substance abuse. Hypnotic therapy was also used with children, specifically to treat problems including bedwetting, nail-biting, and lying. Hypnosis is, of course, still used today, often in conjunction with other treatments for all kinds of things and often with really good outcomes. But there is a whole lot more science behind it today than there was in the 19th century and Lydia's hypnotic eye.
0: (laughs) For certain. So let's move on to Betty's next marriage. Betty married um, a doctor named C.L. Hoover. Hoover, it said, knew nothing of her crimes, actually, uh, nothing of her past at all. Betty and Hoover married, and they had a son, Emile, who was raised actually by her parents in Canada. He didn't spend any or maybe just a very little amount of time with Betty. When Hoover died in 1888, he left Betty in a state that was worth $50,000.
1: At last, she has come into money. (laughs) Um, But she moved on quite quickly. Betty, who had been presenting herself as Cassie Hoover, soon married Dr. Leroy Chadwick. Chadwick's friends, who had never heard of Cassie before this marriage, were completely surprised that the doctor married a woman whose history, family, financial situation, pretty much everything, were all unknowns. She changed her name to Cassie L. Chadwick. And if you're wondering what that L stands for, that is a mystery that Betty took to her grave. Perhaps she could not let go of the name Lydia in her heart. (laughs) It is the same as with the name Cassie, actually. We don't know why she was attached to that name or where it came from.
0: Chadwick was a wealthy widower, and he was also a descendant of one of Cleveland's oldest families. He lived on what was known as Millionaire's Row. You can have some expectations there about his financial state. (laughs) It was around this time when there were a lot of advances in science and technology, and that meant a lot of advances in medical care. Emerging treatments such as general anesthesia, use of x-rays in medical imaging, and even the establishment of
1: germ theory catapulted doctors into the elite class. Cassie spent her time as a newlywed wife redecorating their house, acquiring items like a perpetual motion clock enclosed in glass and that $9,000 pipe organ. She also purchased something called a musical chair that played a tune when someone sat down in it. I want one. (laughs) There are so many questions about why one would want that. Like, Do I get to pick the tune? Like, I'm not sure. (laughs) She also ordered furniture from Europe. And then, in a terribly extravagant move, she bought eight pianos and sent them as gifts during the 1903 holiday season. Can
0: you imagine that just showing up at your door?
1: <laughs> I really cannot. I
0: cannot. <laughs> How do you get it in the house? <laughs> so... In their new home, among their neighbors were relatives of John D. Rockefeller. Senator Marcus Hanna lived there, as well as John Hay, who had been one of President Lincoln's private secretaries. And Cassie, she desperately wanted to fit into this crowd. Instead of being welcomed, though, this exclusive club really saw her more as a woman trying to buy favors from their elite class. And Even when the couple was invited to social events, it said that those invitations were only out of obligation to Dr. Chadwick and that they'd rather not have Cassie there.
1: This, though, was when she planned her biggest scam, and that was posing as the illegitimate daughter of one of the world's richest men. So we're going to take a quick
0: break for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, we're going to talk about how Andrew Carnegie got caught up in this story.
1: Now let's talk about Betty's biggest swindle. Betty's biggest fraud of all,
0: like her entire life began when she convinced the world that she was the
1: illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie, one of the world's richest men. So it started like this. During a visit to New York City, she asked a business associate of her husband to take her to her father's house and gave the address of 2 East 91st Street at 5th Avenue, the Upper East Side of Manhattan. That was actually the address to the Andrew Carnegie Mansion, and she got out of the the vehicle and knocked on the door and was let inside. Can you imagine? She just walked right inside. The reality here, though, is that, yes, she
0: did visit the estate. She did walk inside, but she did not talk to her alleged father. She actually was inside the mansion talking to the butler about a domestic worker named Hilda Schmidt, whom she was hoping to hire for her own home. And she wanted to check out the woman's credentials, but no one in the home had heard of her. So between asking about Hilda and just general chit-chat about, hey, your kitchen looks beautiful, Cassie was able to stretch the meeting for up to 30 minutes.
1: I know I have read some discussions of her where she made up Hilda completely as a, an excuse. I read the same thing. Like,
0: more what I read was that she was absolutely in there, like, talking to the butler. It may be one or the other thing, but it was just
1: definitely talking to the butler. <laughs> <laughs> so when she returned to the carriage after this strange meeting with the butler, Cassie Accidentally, that's sarcasm or air quotes. I heard uh, the air quotes. She dropped a promissory note for $2 million with Carnegie's signature, and her acquaintance just happened to see it. Cassie then shared that she was Carnegie's child, born out of wedlock, and that her father gave her a lot of money. Cassie also claimed that she had $7 million in promissory notes back in her Cleveland home. So, just in case you don't know, a promissory note is basically a signed document that says Person 1 will pay this stated sum of money to Person 2. It's literally just a promise to pay that's made legal with a signature. She mentioned that she would also inherit $400 million when her father died. But of course, She swore this associate to secrecy. All of this had to be kept under wraps. Of course. As it turns out, though, she had selected
0: this particular associate of her husband to take her to the mansion because she thought he wouldn't be able to keep that secret. And she was totally right. He did not keep it a secret. And suddenly everyone knew who her father was.
1: Cassie Chadwick and Andrew Carnegie, though, had absolutely never met. Not once. Uh, Andrew Carnegie and his wife, Louise Whitfield, had just one child, a daughter, Margaret, who was born in 1897, so much younger than Cassie, and lived with her parents in New York. So for Cassie, though, because
0: of her now alleged association with her Carnegie father and his fortune, Cassie was able to withdraw large sums of money from banks. And she was also able to borrow large sums of money from wealthy friends and associates at that time, too. It was common to borrow substantial amounts of money from your friends at this time, especially if you were in the elite class. So that actually wasn't very weird to call up your friend and say, Hey, I need $100,000. And they'd write you a check. Holly and I do this all the time.
1: I mean, no money changes hands because we don't have it. But... I just sign
0: a piece of paper. And
1: send it to Maria, <laughs> my darling, can I have $50,000? I'm going to an extravagant lunch. I got you. I got I you. Got how she...
0: You can get some ex- eyelash extensions for $400 at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Between the years 1897 and 1905, Cassie borrowed more money from banks throughout the Cleveland area than, than like anybody ever had in the, in the history of borrowing money from the Cleveland area. And it was just because she claimed to be Carnegie's daughter. She used $5 million in securities and certificates, all forged with his signature as security on those loans.
1: Word though about Cassie's alleged pedigree spread pretty quickly. In Cleveland, banks could not wait to offer her loans, some for as much as $1 million. They also let Cassie's loans compound annually. So here's how that works and what it actually meant for her. First, we'll talk a little bit about simple interest. Simple interest is calculated by using just the principal balance of a loan. So you have run into this if you have taken out a car loan or a mortgage what you still owe is what they use to calculate your interest. Compounding interest works a little differently. It is calculated based on both the principal balance and the accumulated interest over a period of time. So any interest Cassie earned on the principal of her loan immediately began earning interest on itself. And that's important because it meant that she could take advantage of reinvesting that interest. And that meant that Cassie was making money. I have to say, she's a weasel, but she's pretty smart about this whole thing. She lays a network of corroborators. She is brazen, and she also seems to have a head for numbers. Financial experts refer to this as interest on interest. And if there were ever any problems, the bank just assumed that Carnegie would be able to vouch for any of these debts.
0: Well, why wouldn't he? (laughs) She ended up buying herself all kinds of luxuries, everything from diamond necklaces to the gold organ for her home. She became known in the papers as the Queen of Ohio. She threw $100,000 dinner parties and she amassed debts totaling between 2 to $20 million. Now, that's a Big range, but no one seems to agree on just how much debt she really accumulated, just that it was a staggering
1: amount. There's a thing that comes up in some of these historical reckonings where there are enough people that are just so embarrassed to have been swindled yes. by people like this that they never actually report it. They just suck it up and try to lay low. So no one thinks they're foolish and don't want to do business with them again. Um uh, these th- these things still happen today. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. No. <laughs> Everything is fine. Uh, (laughs) Cassie was eventually revealed, although not when anyone exposed her as her true identity of Betty Bigley or through a fraudulent banking deal. But this was because of a man named Herbert Newton, who was a banker that was living in Massachusetts. Now, Newton had loaned money to Cassie nearly $200,000, and he naturally requested repayment. In November 1904, when Newton learned that Cassie had a huge number of loans, he did the math, he realized she was scamming him, probably other people. He filed suit against Chadwick to recover the nearly $200,000 that he had lost. And he also visited the Wade Park Bank, only to find out for sure that she was an imposter. He also contacted his associate, who happened to be Andrew Carnegie, to ask about his daughter, Cassie Chadwick's loan. (laughs) Carnegie was surprised. He only had one daughter. That daughter was not Cassie. His actual daughter was still quite a young child at this point. And it was discovered that Cassie's promissory notes were all forgeries. One bank, Citizens National Bank of Oberlin, had actually loaned her $800,000 and ended up going bankrupt because of her fraud. This is where Betty slash
0: Cassie, call her what you want at this point. (laughs) This is where her career ends. Now, most accounts say she was arrested on December 7th, 1904 at the Hotel Breslin in Cleveland with $100,000 with her. Uh, But there are other accounts that suggest she fled to New York City to the Holland House Hotel only to be arrested and returned to Ohio. But either way, Cleveland or New York City, she stood trial and she stood trial in Cleveland.
1: And that trial drew national attention. When Andrew Carnegie was asked about his alleged daughter, Cassie, the Carnegie family issued a press release saying Mr. Carnegie does not know Mrs. Chadwick of Cleveland. (laughs) At
0: the trial, Betty denied all charges and also denied the claim of any relationship at all with Andrew Carnegie. It has been repeatedly said, we quote her saying, that I had asserted that Andrew Carnegie was my father. I deny that and I deny it absolutely.
1: This is one of those cases where I feel like she was very judicious in her explanation to that first blabbermouth person, (laughs) where she would refer to her father, but never say, my father is Andrew Carnegie. So to her, she always had an hour. She's like, I never said that. But the jury did not believe any of this story. And on March 5th, 1905, Betty was convicted on seven counts of conspiracy against the government. That is because she had defrauded banks that were federally insured and also conspiracy to wreck the Citizens National Bank of Oberlin. She was fined $70,000 and sentenced to 10 years in the Ohio State Penitentiary. Some sources actually say that her sentence was as high as 14 years.
0: One local paper wrote about her reaction to being in prison when she was first incarcerated, and I'm going to quote from that. She fretted incessantly over her confinement until it became almost impossible for her to sleep. At times, she was so peevish, the patience of the prison officials was sorely tried.
1: I picture her treating them like... Staff. Household my staff. God, yeah. <laughs> like being like, I need my pillow fluff. Right? I need my. Will someone play the organ for me? <laughs> Where's my $9,000 um, organ? But we should say that Betty did not serve time as everyone else would. If you recall another historical figure, Al Capone's cell had fine furniture and rugs, a cabinet radio and other luxuries you would certainly not expect in prison. Unlike Capone, Betty's cell was super plush, <laughs> probably nicer than a lot of homes that existed at the time. Because of her popularity and her celebrity status, she was allowed to have trunks of her finest clothing and her jewelry with her in prison, and even furniture and other luxuries. She also gave access to any reporters who wished to interview her. It was like she wrote her own calling card visiting <laughs> hours.
0: My seasonal hours are. <laughs> But back to seriousness here, according to the local papers, she was not well and she was visibly declining and noticeably so during her trial. We aren't sure what she was ill and what she ultimately passed away from, but we do know that when she suddenly collapsed one afternoon, about two years into her sentence, she was moved to the Ohio State Penitentiary Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. She remained there until she died, which was on her birthday, actually, October 10th, 1907.
1: A newspaper account of her death from a paper in Ashtabula, a town about 50 miles outside of Cleveland, stated, quote, The extent of these transactions will never be fully known, but they ran up into the millions. They involved men of high standing in the financial world and caused heavy losses to many bankers. Andrew Carnegie personally attended this trial and upon
0: examination of the promissory notes in question said, quote, If anybody had seen this paper and then really believed that I had drawn it up and signed it, I could hardly have been flattered, pointing out several errors in spelling and punctuation. He continued, why, I have not signed a note in the last 30 years. And then my favorite sentence, I think, of of all. The whole scandal could have been avoided, he added, if anyone had bothered to ask him. (laughs)
1: I love how he gets in a nice little dig. Does anybody verify anything? (laughs) Right? Doesn't seem like it.
0: Holly, do you have a mocktail that Mr. Carnegie might want to drink?
1: I don't know if he would want to drink it or not. I have one and I love this one. But I wanted to do something that, like Betty slash Lydia slash (laughs) Cassie, not everyone might like. (laughs) Understood. But the people that like it will really like it. Um... One of the things I wanted to think about while doing this was looking at historically what people were drinking then. I like to do that in general. But one article that I looked at caught my eye because it specifically mentioned absinthe suddenly being available to bartenders in North America and a lot of bartenders starting to experiment with it in drinks. And not everyone loves absinthe, but I do. And uh, (laughs) I know there's a a place that I like to go to when I'm on vacation. There's a particular bar and they have an absinthe cocktail and it's no longer on the menu, but you can still get it Mm -hmm. if you ask for it because people would go in and think, ooh, an absinthe, that sounds fun. I'll drink it. And then they would be like, this tastes like licorice. I don't want this drink. I was going to
0: say, a lot of people I think don't
1: like licorice and I love it. so. I think there's a misperception. I could be wrong. I haven't ever polled anyone that has had this experience, but I think people think absinthe might taste minty and they have that in their head because it's associated with the color green Uh, and it's not minty. It's like black licorice. Yeah. It's Uh, not minty at all. If you're expecting, if you're expecting mojito flavor and you get (laughs) black licorice, you might not like it. So I wanted to come up with uh, a mocktail that kind of masqueraded a little bit as absinthe. Like I said, not, everyone would like it just like cassie and i'm calling it the calling card <laughs> oh that's great you're gonna start with two large sprigs of dill and when i say that i don't mean one stem i mean like a sprig that has many stems <laughs> on it. take two of those i love a little dill and you're gonna put it in your cocktail shaker and you're gonna muddle it a little bit like i have said before you don't pulverize it you just want to You'll feel it crush underneath the muddler, or if you just have a wooden spoon, if you don't have a muddler, that works fine. And just give it a little crushing, a little muddling. And then you are going to add three quarters of an ounce of anise syrup, which of course tastes like licorice, Mm -hmm. and then five ounces of coconut water. And then you give that a hearty, shaky, shake, shake and strain it over ice. And you're going to get some little bits of dill in Mm -hmm. there and that'll come through the shaker and that's just fine. It's so yummy. (laughs) (laughs) It's so yummy. I love it. I never Uh, would have
0: thought of absinthe and dill together.
1: That's an interesting pairing. The dill does something because without it, it just tastes like really sweet licorice Mm -hmm. because I, my coconut water was a little sweetened. If you use an unsweetened one, you'll get a little less of that. Mm-hmm. But it's like the dill opens up the flavor in a way that that I associate with absinthe. Mm-hmm. And absinthe itself has herbal things going on in it. Yeah. And the dill helps mimic that a little bit and in a way that's very refreshing. That is the calling card. The calling card. <laughs> uh, Again, two large sprigs of dill, three quarters of an ounce of anise syrup, and five ounces of coconut water. If you wanted to make an alcoholic version of this, you could just drink absinthe. <laughs> it's often served with the sugar cube and a water, right. a little bit of water, right. so you're there. If you're just feeling nutty and you don't want to do that, you could do the coconut water in the dill, and instead of the anise syrup, you could use anise Um, Mm -hmm. basically an anise liqueur instead of it and that would be lovely if you really wanted to kick it up past that you could use three quarters of an ounce of of anise set and then maybe three quarters of an ounce of vodka so you get a little more alcohol by volume at that point but I loved it. I made myself two of them, Excellent. like the non-alcoholic ones <laughs> and then just the alcoholic. While I was part. looking at the script, because I was like, "This is delicious."
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I like to think that the woman who put her seasonal hours might have this out for her guests who do come during those hours,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> you know?
0: Two hours, three nights a week. So it's not she's really not putting a lot
1: of effort into (laughs) it. Would would you like a calling card? It's delicious and refreshing. (laughs) Everybody lets have absinthe. But if you did not everyone drinks. Absinthe is a unique taste that you don't get in many beverages. So if you like that taste and you are not a drinker, you gotta figure out another way around. Exactly. You got you gotta get Uh, some dill. (laughs) some dill and and licorice syrup and you're on your way you could also I didn't try this but I would like to if you used a coconut sparkling water I think you would get a less sweet version of it that might also be really fun
0: I like a sparkling I'm going to try that
1: I do so many bubble things Mm -hmm. that I thought I would do something that was not bubbly this time. We'll see what happens next time. We'll see. Any number (laughs) of bubbles or not. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for hanging out with us today and talking about Cassie and also Absinthe. You may not have anticipated that coming. Uh, (laughs) Hope we will see you right here again next week for more stories of imposters.